0: This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Tim Portium. Beat for beat, bar for bar, I'm Andrew Carroll. And uh, today we're putting a pin in our two-part Willem Dafoe series because I got the opportunity to chat to Catherine S. McMullen, the writer of The Other Lamb, a psychological thriller set in a cult uh, now streaming on MUBI. Uh, but before we get into that, I thought myself and Andrew could talk a little bit about I Know the Face's plan for the rest of the year. So obviously for this episode we have this, and then on December 3rd we have Willem Dafoe Part 2, and then December 17th we're looking at the best of the year, and then for On New Year's Eve, December 31st, we have an episode about what's coming out in 2021. And I'll, I'll be also reaching out to interesting people who have new movies out or have movies out in 2020 for some bonus episodes, so keep an eye on your feeds for that. We should note that uh, we are now recording remotely due to COVID restrictions on The Other hand, I spoke to Catherine S. McMullen, who wrote the movie. She explains the plot in the interview, but it's this really eerie and hypnotising movie about cult dynamics, while at the same time telling a tale of a young woman born into the life who gradually becomes aware of its evils and she's played by former child star Rafi Cassidy, who people may know from Tomorrowland, and as she's gotten older she's become a bit of an arthouse darling uh, appearing in things like Killing of a Sacred Deer where she memorably sang an Ellie Goulding song um, <laughs> she also played the lead in a Vox Lux I think she's, cap- oh. she's captivating in this She's awesome, and also noticeable about the other lamb is that it was shot in Wicklow and director uh Malgorzata Sumoska, who's polish uh, makes it look so beautiful and but so creepy and otherworldly yeah it's an interesting conversation too because she provides extra context for some of the movie symbolism and detail it's a very rich film in that respect and uh, Mm. she also talks about it being a blacklist selected script and explains how because she's australian you know how this international co-production came about Um, i thought was fascinating so i hope you enjoy that there
1: once was a woman made of moonlight and teeth she would roam in the woods searching for something hunting
0: He just kept telling me you are perfect you are accepted oh my shepherd I need a deeper experience with you than I ever had before so beautiful just like your mother's come Come down down upon me and fill me with yourself let us pray my wives you all came to me broken like cruel world i took every one of you in i sacrificed my
1: life for you i gave you daughters and sisterhood and life
0: let us reflect on our blessings yes, my
1: you think that because you haven't had your time yet that makes you special prepare yourself child our great shepherd won't be so sweet on you then
0: Congratulations on The Other Lamb, I loved it. You wrote the screenplay. I was curious, have you seen the finished cut of the film? Because I know that you're currently in Melbourne and I don't think the movie's come out there yet, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I was lucky enough to be able to see it at TIFF, so I um, I went to TIFF and I also went to the uh, London Film Festival when it aired there last year, so it kind of, it was pretty lucky. I've had a few friends that have had films come out recently and it kind of just crested over COVID in terms of it did its festival run. It was getting released and we didn't get a full theatrical run, but we had mostly done our festivals. So, yeah, I've seen it a few times.
0: Great. And what was your thoughts Great. on the finished product? Did the Irish Wicklow scenery match what you had in your hand when you wrote the script?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, I, I, I loved the finished film. Margo's an incredible director. You know, she's this is I think film number eight or nine for her. You know, she's done a beautiful, beautiful job with the script. Um, and her first English language one. Um, for me, it's had kind of a strange path. I wrote it originally as um, it was all set in Australia, so it was all set in the desert. It was um, very hot. It was very much about like isolation and landscape. Um, and then when I uh, optioned it to the producers at Rumble to um Stephanie and David, they had a kind of really long-standing relationships in Europe and um kind of asked me very not tentatively but said, look, we're really interested, but. Yeah would you be willing to consider resetting it? Um, and I'm actually Irish-Australian, so I have an Irish passport and an Australian passport, and they mentioned Ireland, and I was like, yeah, like, if you said, you know, a different country, I might struggle a bit more, but I I would love to, you know, set something there, and I think it still works thematically. So, um, and then I redid the script from there to that setting.
0: What part of Ireland are you originally from?
1: Uh, so my granddad was born there. He was born just out of Dublin. Um, okay. And then he moved to Australia and um, we've been back a few times, but uh, I'm, it's, it's a tenuous connection, but I, um, <laughs> I went back there and kind of um, we scattered some of his ashes and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it was kind of out of all the countries they sort of could have said it, either Australia or Ireland are the ones I kind of feel the most connection to. So
0: Yeah. It's interesting, another 2020 movie, Gretel and Hansel, um, shot around the same area of Dublin and Wicklow and... I think it's great that Ireland has become the place for these um, yeah. international art house, female, coming of age horror thrillers. Before we get into the movie, could you explain the story for those listening who may not know?
1: Yeah, so the story centres around Silla, um, a young girl that's been raised in a cult, uh, so it's all she's ever known, she's very isolated I kind of really wanted to explore, um, yeah, what what happens when you're taught one universe and then a, a new way of life kind of intrudes. She's raised in the middle of a forest and uh, starts to, after kind of a particular event that's very shocking for her, starts to question her leader and what he's teaching them all.
0: Right. And it's a movie that's universal, but also very timely. And I, I think these stories about men and male cult leaders preying on vulnerable women and exploiting them and also making them feel at the same time as if that they're doing the women a favor i think it's a a tale as old as time but i think maybe as a society we're more keenly aware of it now so like watching the movie i was thinking about charles manson but i I was also thinking about the me too movement Uh, what was the genesis for the story of the other life as you were writing it
1: Yeah, so i mean everything you say there is spot on in terms of i think I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. I think a lot of what fascinated me about cults is just that we keep on seeing this story and it's so familiar. I watched a lot of documentaries and it really was that thing where if you've seen one, you've seen them all in terms of how they use control, how they use women, you know, how they keep people, you know, often there's one of them and 20 of the people they're subjugating, but no one rises up. Like It's all kind of a power play game. So the genesis of the story for me, I'd, I'd been fascinated with cults for you know decades and um, I actually wrote a short story called The Other Faced Lamb that was published in, I think it was 2012, so a, a while ago. It's very similar, very different in lots of ways, but the basic story is still the same. You know, There's a cult in the middle of the desert, um, it's isolated and they, they go on a journey. And then, as I moved more into screenwriting, kind of my career took off, and I started to get opportunities. I decided to turn the short story into a feature, um, and I continued to, you know, I devour every cult documentary I can get my hands on. Pretty much, um, I've been watching all of the Nixium content yeah. recently. Like, I'm, I'm not writing any more cult films. I think that that's done. But. Um, it's something that still fascinates me and um, and so kind of I'd watched Wild Wild Country, I'd um, I mean just sent the world as well, like things had kind of gotten worse in some ways, not better. And then so when I wrote the screenplay that all kind of informed it. So it was a an earlier story that then was redone as a feature later
0: and was there any movies or novels that you're inspired by as well as you were flashing out the story in the world of the screenplay just because movie feels very rich in detail and symbolism um, some of which i'll be picking your brain about <laughs> in a few yeah. more questions
1: well i mean I, I i won't lie like handmaid's tale the novel is one of my favorites and it's definitely one of the ones that has like it's it's a very obvious reference it's not a shock um Uh, I haven't actually seen the show, but um, the, I mean, the show and obviously the book are very different in some ways and they're very similar in others by all accounts. Uh, There's also, yeah, there's a few short stories. There's a short story by an Australian author called Margot Lanigan that really affected me, just about very different things, but about a very isolated community. Um, and kind of in a very alien world, but a very recognisable one called Singing My Sister Down. That was certainly an, an inspiration. And then, yeah, just a lot of documentaries. There's um, there was one, I think it's called the, the Family at the End of the World that I watched quite a lot, and I know Malgo watched quite a lot, the director, I sent it to her as kind of part of the package of this was what inspired me. And I listened to a lot of cult leader tapes, which was actually quite... Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it 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 was quite an intense experience but you know I listened to um like the speeches of Jonestown and stuff like that just a lot of the rhythm and how they controlled language I found really interesting hmm. um yeah so lots of different sources some fictional a lot of real life ones and then I just let it all sit in my brain for a while
0: right in the finished film it, it, it feels like a very tight screenplay because I, I feel like every line is full of wave and Either in that it can be interpreted in a number of different ways, or a line will so, so succinctly like elucidate on a theme that you you don't need more. Like I'm, I was thinking of the Sarah's Lion, where she talks about Shepherd, the cup leader, and she says like his attention is like the sun, glorious at first, but then it just burns, which I think is beautiful. Was the script always that tight, or is some of that the director of Malgorzata Zamoska?
1: it was definitely a combination of the two so it was a tight screenplay even before it was optioned it, it never went over 90 pages which is kind of is reasonable but is is um i'd consider quite a, a short screenplay um and then before we got to shoot it was down significantly i think it was down another 10 um and you know it's you can get away with that in a film like that because there was a lot of you know wordless scenes and a lot of um landscape shots and Mm. and things about dialogue because dialogue will extend out a script um and then after that as well you know dialogue that was on the page we might have filmed or we might have cut in the edit or whatever and it it is always really interesting i think the rule of thumb is about one in three in terms of you really think you need that line but often when you have a good enough actor you actually don't like you an actor can convey that thing you've just written with their, their face and their body language and all of that so it's um Yeah, it was definitely a process of whittling it down, but it was never a long script. It was, you know, it's a pretty simple story, really, when when you look
0: at it on paper. You hear the term, like, international co-production, but this definitely encapsulates that because it's a screenplay from an Australian writer that ends up in the hands of a Polish director making her English-language debut and shooting in Ireland. I I imagine the script being chosen for The Blacklist, which is the, you know, for best unproduced scripts, that opens a lot of doors in that respect.
1: I mean it definitely did that i would say so um it's interesting i wasn't as familiar with how the process worked before um before i was on the blacklist and then kind of all the things but um uh the script I, I i have an australian agent and then i was kind of making a push to go to the states i've been working in australia but i was still considered very new um and then i signed with my us managers i started to send my script out and as samples and then um, it was optioned by Rumble. And then from there, it, it still was getting read, but it means you send it to production companies and you say, oh, you know, the script is actually taken, um, but if, if you'd like to meet with Catherine, here's her sample. And then at the end of the year, people vote on their favourite scripts. And, um, and it was one of the ones. And it, and it was it was actually, I'd say in some ways, um, having a film made is, is amazing, but unless someone then goes and finds your screenplay, they don't always know if you're a good writer, what the director did, what you did the blacklist very much opened a lot of doors for me just in terms of assignment jobs and being up for staffing gigs and stuff like that because it's it's very much whether or not your film gets made here's the list and so many people just read through literally every list on that script so um yeah it was it was quite life-changing
0: i know that face are delighted and proud to be sponsored by the podcast 180 degrees what do you know about sustainable energy what does being energy efficient actually mean How can your business or workplace reduce its carbon emissions and what are the benefits? 180 Degrees is a podcast answering these questions by sharing the stories of people across Ireland working towards a cleaner energy future. They chat to the people who are making a real difference in the areas of sustainable transport, energy in the home, and in our communities. They hear how businesses and public sector bodies are cutting carbon emissions and how energy research is informing policy decisions. 180 Degrees is brought to you by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, supported by the government around. It's great, wholesome content. Subscribe to 180 Degrees wherever you get your podcasts and go check out their latest episode when you finish listening to my interview. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Alan's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. I'm Connor Reid, with words to that effect. How do the Victorians invent time? Where do all those pirate cliches come from? Should we all read romance novels? Why are kids so obsessed with dinosaurs? What makes the perfect detective story? What happens to culture and society in a post apocalyptic world where everything oh God. has stopped? Words to that effect tell stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts and at WTTEpodcast.com. And now, back to the show. Yeah. Once you're having the screenplay over then to Malgozada, is, is that your part done or are you tweaking it more? Is she, is she coming to you for advice or further guidance on scenes? How does that relationship work? I imagine it's different for each movie.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's certainly different for each film. I mean Malgazada was incredibly generous in the sense of she normally co-writes her script, she's a writer-director, she's an amazing director but she's an amazing writer-director in normal, you know in her normal language and um stuff like that. So I did, from when we kind of started talking really seriously, we did page turns where, you know, we'd go through the script together and I would change a character or I would change a sequence of scenes. Um, And we we did a few of those. So that was definitely a very collaborative process, including with the director, lots of notes. And, you know, some of sometimes they're creative and sometimes they're just logistical, like, you know, you've written this herd of sheep and we need it to be smaller. I'm like, yep, I I can't, it's not like I can argue about that really. If I think it's really important, I might have a chat. But um, before I became a screenwriter, I actually worked in production. So I I worked on big US shows that shot out of Melbourne. And it it does mean you get that sense of like, this thing's really important, but if we can't film it, we can't film it. So I have to go find a solution on the page. And yeah, so I did a few passes and then pretty much once the movie I'd say really it's once the movie starts shooting, you you do just, unless you've got a very close relationship with the director, then it tends to become completely their baby. Like there might be something that they have to change on the day or dialogue that has to be cut or something that's not working. And unless you're really in with production, it's, it's hard to do that. Like I think one creative voice kind of has to take over and take point. And at that point it is very much the director's show and the director's baby.
0: Um,
1: So yeah, I, I was very lucky. I definitely, it wasn't, you know, Here's the script and then cut it out. I um I worked really closely with Margot and then um did a few drafts of that.
0: That's great. And what do you think of Rafi Cassidy um, yeah, as Sella, really your heroine? Um, I, I thought she was an incredible child actress. I had seen her in Tomorrowland and I think between Vox Lux, yeah, Killing of a Sacred Deer, and the other Lamb, I think she's going to have an amazing career.
1: Yeah, no, I I think she's incredible. And he healed. he um he did such a good job and kind of just the kind of cult leader with like charisma but also just you can kind of see that he's just kind of trying to hold on to power yeah no it was it was a really incredible pairing between the two i thought but, and i, I yeah Rafi is just she's going to be such a huge star
0: i want to ask kind you of, about the, the symbolism as i said like um i was wondering about the threads or the strings around shepherd's commune you know sometimes they're patterned like a spider's web sometimes they form a wall around him as he's doing his sermons um my theory is that they kind of, the intricate process of laying them down is another way he keeps control over the women, like giving them distracting, time consuming, menial tasks. I also thought the more straight they are in a scene signifies how much power Shepard has in that moment. Am I reading too much into this? Or what are your thoughts? Um,
1: so some of it's spot on, and some of it, I mean, what's, what I do love about film is that it's very possible that some of those things are true and the production designer and the director worked on that uh, for, from my perspective the main thing was um uh, some of that was developed as we shot, by the way and, and then some of it was on the page uh, a lot of it was I wanted to emphasize that they were they weren't completely self-reliant but that there was a real focus on the products of sheep and what they could make and what they could as you say like that really menial labor that kept them busy and kept them like you know, authentic in the sense of, like, oh, we're just working with what we've got and with our hands, but also it takes hours to Mm. get wool and get milk and do all of that stuff, like, and and something to distract you. Um, And then really just that sense of claustrophobia and being trapped, like, the, you know, it led them through the trees, but at the same time it was always kind of surrounding them and keeping them within and stopping them from exploring or going off the path. So it was meant to be a little bit not quite spider's web, but just that sense of, like, oh, if I, if I just walk through the trees, that I, I can't. Like, i kind of got to follow this way because that's where the string's kind of going. Oh, um, and then in terms of how, like, yeah, straight it is in the scenes, I'm not sure that might be a production design thing. <laughs> but it'd be great if so. It sounds really clever.
0: <laughs> and also, Selah has these disorienting, very strikingly shot visions in the movie, which sometimes feel like foreshadowing of events that are to come, but also sometimes fantasies of another life she could have led. I was thinking about that car scene. Um, were they in the screenplay originally? And you, how do you interpret those moments?
1: Yeah, so that that was a really great um, example of something that was in the screenplay, but then was taken to another level during the shot and then during the edit. Uh, so she'd always had these kind of surreal sequences, and it was meant to be, you know, a little bit ambiguous about if they were true or not, until you kind of saw them play out. Then... We'd originally saw the car scene, which is, I think, actually incredibly important. That one wasn't in the screenplay, that was all Malgo. What we had was something that was close in the sense that it was Sela or the outside world. So, for anyone that hasn't seen it, it's kind of Sela's walking with all of the wives and her sisters and sees a car on the road. And then you kind of see herself in the car watching them as they walk. And it's, it's a very kind of surreal moment. What we had originally in the script was just that it was the fact that she saw a car and someone in it that kind of looked like her, like a girl about her age that was kind of clearly an alternate version of her life. It was also like it should be quite jarring to see a car at that stage in the film because mm-hmm. it's not that kind of film. You haven't you've seen it once up until then. You don't really know when you are. And then that was something where Malgo really took it to a next level by going, well, let's literally cast a car and make it much more of a surrealistic kind of is that her, is she there, is that in her head, is, you know, how is this working, is it literally that was her alternate life, all of that stuff, so yeah, it's it's a beautiful sequence, especially
0: one of my favourites. Like, I loved it, I think it's a movie that's so, as I said, rich before, I've, I've seen it twice in two weeks and yeah, I got so much more out of it the second time, like, and I really loved it, enjoyed it the first time and then the second time, because there is all these threads and, you know, ambiguous things that there's a, there's a lot to, like, sink your teeth into the movie I wanted to ask you like, at a time when cinemas are closed around the world are, are you happy The Other Lamb has found a home on a streaming service like movie at least in the UK and Ireland you promoted it a lot and from where it could be widely seen and get great reviews or, or is it a bit bittersweet like, did you want it to have a, a more of a theatrical run
1: Look, a theatrical run would have be been amazing. I just really feel lucky that it had a festival run and then was released at all. You know, we're all just making impossible choices about is it better to release it or better to hold on to it. And for me, I'd you know this film I optioned it at the start of 2016, I think, or maybe 17. It's really quick as far as features go, but it's it's you know I just wanted it out in the world and for people to see it. But. I know Malgo said in interviews, and I do understand that as a director, like she, you know, that experience of going to the cinema and not being able to check your phone and not being able to pause it, like, and just, it's a beautifully shot film. Like, it's the cinematographer did such a good job. So being able to see that on a big screen is incredible and it, it isn't the same at home. So I think, you know, it's kind of, you kind of can't win, um, but I'm, I'm really happy that people are seeing it. I'm hoping it becomes something where, you know, you might, Go an art house movie night and see it on the big screen if you like it enough. But um, yeah, you know it's a tough time for theatrical. I hope it comes
0: back. You worked on one of my favorite shows ever, The Leftovers. And I did. <laughs> you, were, you were a production freelancer. Um, what did that entail, and uh, was it a good experience?
1: I worked on uh, The Leftovers in the costume department, and I worked on the in the construction department as um, both times as kind of a coordinator, so an admin production person that kind of coordinates all the isn't in charge of, but helps coordinate all of the buyers for costume and all of the construction people and paperwork and all of that. Um, it was incredible. I mean, I you know, I actually primarily work in TV, much more so than I work in features. That's where most of my career is and most of my work is. You can't get much cooler than working on The Leftovers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> One day, if I was ever lucky enough to work on American shows, I kind of knew how they worked a bit more, um, which has been incredibly helpful and I'm really glad I did. Mm.
0: And is there any projects you're working on now um, that you're excited about, or is there anything you'd like to plug?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm super. You know, after the other lamb, I was um staffed and TV show that's out on uh, Netflix called Two Sentence Horror Stories. So I wrote two episodes with that. I loved that experience. It. Yeah, I have a lot of my really close friends in the states. So people that I wrote with on that, and um, yeah, I had a fantastic time. And then, yeah, I'm just in a development cycle at the moment. So I've got um, some features I'm working on with producers and also a few pilots and things. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, I feel incredibly lucky that, I'm. you know, it was really tough for production crew for a long time during this, whereas for writers you could kind of, even if you weren't getting paid, you could kind of keep on doing your own thing. So Australia is really picking up now. We've got a lot of work, but um, it was rough for a while there. So I was very lucky
0: that's everything i wanted to ask you thanks for taking the time and speaking to me and congratulations no again on the other land no problem that was my interview with catherine s mcmullen i hope you enjoyed it andrew where can people find more of your work you can find me at the Head Stuff gaming section where we talk about what we play why we play it and how we play it you can check out the film section to see some of my work or see the work of uh the many fantastic uh headstuff contributors to the film section. Rate and review, subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Email us at I know that facepod at gmail dot com if you you have a person you'd like us to cover, or you're someone who works in film or media or podcasts who would like to be on the show. Follow us on Twitter at I Know That Face P1. Andrew's killing it with some great memes. Follow us on Instagram at I Know That Face. Thanks to Shani Fernandez again for editing and for also running the Insta page. See you later, Cinephiles. Bye bye. This has been a production of the headstuff Podcast Network.